Today's episode is brought to you by our Sharper Together patrons. Our patrons make it possible to continue bringing you these life-giving conversations with Christian leaders all across the globe. As Sharper Together patrons, you can receive exclusive content, early access to episodes, and much more. To find out more about becoming a Sharper Together patron, please visit www.sharperpodcast.com backslash donate. As a believer, you are the bride of Christ. You are his body. You may be an arm, you may be a leg, you may be an eye, you may be an ear, whatever the case would be. God doesn't have people in his kingdom that sit on the sidelines. What a tremendous blessing that you're missing by by just simply going, as it were, for a take it or leave it mentality of warming a pew, sucking up all you can from others, but never giving. Welcome to the Sharper Together podcast. This is a show built on the Proverbs 27, 17 truth that is iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. It is our hope that listening to real life stories and Q&A from leaders of all walks of life, that you'll be encouraged, empowered, and equipped in your own walk with Christ. Today's guest is Dustin Benj. Dustin is provost and professor at Union School of Theology in South Wales. He also serves as a senior fellow of the Andrew Fuller Center for Baptist Studies on the campus of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. He's a visiting professor at Munster Bible College in Cork, Ireland, and has written several books in the areas of biblical spirituality, church history, Puritans, Jonathan Edwards, and American history. I'm your host, Michael Lee. Let's jump into today's episode and stay sharper together. Dustin, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining me today. Well, Michael, it's a privilege and a joy uh, to join you. Um, I send you greetings from Wales, and uh, it's very nice to uh, have you invited me to come on. Absolutely. My first question for you is, what's the most embarrassing thing or embarrassing story that you're willing to share with us? Oh, wow. That... um... That's difficult. I'm I'm just to be honest, I'm not easily embarrassed. I think my embarrassment normally comes when I forget things or when I've not put them on a calendar. But thinking back over the course of ministry, there was a time that I had traveled internationally to do some uh missionary work in the small little Caribbean country of Haiti. And I remember being a very young man, I think I was about 16 years old, and I had been invited to come to this particular church and preach. Uh, Of course, they speak a different language, and so I had an interpreter standing beside me, and he was interpreting the message. And in the middle of the sermon, I remember, and perhaps this is not an embarrassing story, but a funny story, I remember in the back doorway in, this is in the middle of my sermon, in walked a woman fully dressed in a wedding gown, and she started marching up the aisle. This is in the middle of my sermon. The whole church stood up. Out from the side door came this groom and his groomsman. Now, I'm trying to preach a sermon, and this this lady is going to get married. (laughs) And so I stopped the sermon, and I asked my interpreter, I said, what's going on here? Uh, Of course, a 16-year-old boy, I had no idea what to do. And he said, oh, no, don't don't worry anything about this. He said, there's going to be a wedding after you get done preaching. So you just keep on preaching. 
So in the middle of my sermon, this wedding party comes in, these women are adorning this bride, and she's marching down the aisle. And uh, here I am as a young man in ministry, having no idea what's happening to me. So I've always found that story kind of funny. Uh, I was a little embarrassed, not knowing kind of what to do or what to say. But that's a story that that definitely sticks out in my mind. That's that's incredible. Were you asked to do the wedding? No, thankfully I was not. Yeah. Um, I, I had never done a wedding before, of course, but thankfully I was not asked to do that. But I sat and enjoyed the ceremony after I preached. <laughs> The only thing that would have made it better is if you were preaching about the bride of Christ that day. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> Had your own sermon illustration already walking on you. <laughs> we'll kind of shift gears a little bit. It's very similar to it. What's your favorite story about your life that you love to tell? It could be about faith. It could be about family, anything you want. Well, you know, Michael, probably outside of salvation and the calling to gospel ministry. So Saturday was my 25th anniversary of announcing a call to preach. And the Lord has just been so faithful during these past 25 years. But beyond that and beyond my salvation experience, one of my favorite stories to tell is how I met my wife. And so I had prayed for a very long time, many, many years, actually, for God to send me a godly lady to marry and to be a helpmate to me and for us to fall in love and and create a home. And I had a best friend, uh, still wonderful friend. His mother set about, she was kind of like, I don't know if your listeners have heard of uh, Lucy Ricardo and Ethel Mertz from I Love Lucy. She was kind of like one of them. She found no single man that stayed single for very long. And so when I became friends with her son, she set about to find me a wife. And so she introduced me to this girl. She had us over for dinner, which perhaps was should have been the most embarrassing story that I've ever had. Uh, because it was extremely awkward and strange and weird. But then uh, after a few months, I had enough courage to call this girl. And we are now celebrating several years of marriage. And it's just a a beautiful story of God's faithfulness. I had been single uh, for about 10 years, not having a relationship or a serious relationship since my early 20s. I was just in my early 30s. I thought God had completely forgotten me, uh, but yet I had a desire to be married. And so he was faithful and sent me a very godly young woman. But it was through kind of the matchmaking services of my best friend's mom. A godly woman finding you a godly woman. Yes, yes. <laughs> what would you say to the person who's listening? This is kind of a side question to that. What would you say to the person who's listening who has been praying that same prayer as you uh, and they're waiting for that godly man and that godly woman? What would you say to them, that, that those people that are in that season right now? Yeah, well, that's a good question. Sometimes, and I can speak from experience on this, it can quite cripple you in your faith physically, in the trajectory of your life. It can very much hinder everything you're doing because that's constantly on your mind. It's a desire of your heart. But I think uh, eventually you just simply have to trust the Lord, don't you? you? You have to trust that He is sovereign, that His plan for your life is for good as a believer 
that he's making you more like Christ. And perhaps during this waiting period, he's teaching you things about himself that otherwise perhaps you would never have known. He's teaching you about patience. He's teaching you about his faithfulness. He's teaching you how to wait on him to do his perfect work. And so you just wait and you pray and you trust the Lord to do it in his own time. That's a great word, a great encouragement. What's something that you wish you had known when you first came to faith in the Lord? That's also a good question. I'm not given a considerable amount of thought to that. I, I was saved at quite an early age. And so that's a hard question to answer. I, I grew up in the church and really didn't know anything different than the church. I don't have one of these grand testimonies that God saved me from a life of horrible activity, even though I was depraved and a sinner and headed to hell and all of the rest of it. But being a young boy when God saved me, my mind, my heart, did not really ever know anything different than growing up in the church and serving the church. And so after salvation, I just went back to those things that I'd always done. But of course, I went back to them with greater affection. So I'm not sure what I wish I had known, but perhaps that's that's a better question for uh, the beginning of ministry. What is it that I wish I would have known when I first was called into ministry? What would you say to that person who thinks, you know, my testimony's not that great. I didn't, I wasn't saved out of this or that. How much that matters? Well, I think if we fully understood our own sin and our own depravity and from the level of sin that the Lord saved us, I think that elevates everyone's personal testimony to a great gospel story. There's nobody, there's nobody that he saves that is not headed to hell. Every single person whom he saves, Christ died for, shed his blood. He didn't shed more blood for the one who lived a life of sin and then was saved like perhaps the thief on the cross than he does the individual that was saved as a 10-year-old boy. He shed the same amount of blood because our sin was as heinous as even that person who lived an entire lifetime of sin. And so whoever God saves, your story is important because he saved you from sin. He paid the price that you owed, and he justified you before God, and he brought you into fellowship with his Father. And so regardless of the age, regardless of your story, your story is still a beautiful picture of the gospel. Absolutely. And don't be afraid to share it. There's mm. there's people out there that need to hear that. And so your story can have an immense impact eternally. Absolutely. I think it's great for a testimony to be a springboard to the gospel. Never use your testimony as the gospel because it's not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus died. He lived a sinless life. He died a substitutionary death. He rose triumphantly on the third day for the forgiveness of sins, and he offers salvation to all those who come to him by faith. That's the gospel. But you can share with someone your testimony as a springboard to that gospel. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great reminder. Can you talk about a season in your life that was really difficult for you and what God did in that season, bringing you out of that, what you learned? Probably, I would say, Some of that difficult season was just a few years ago for me, after having graduated with my 
doctoral degree from seminary, I really set about to desire to serve the Lord in whatever capacity He would have me to serve in, but I had no idea what direction I would go in ministry. I knew God had called me to preach. I knew He had called me to proclaim His Word. I just was not convinced what context that that would be in. And so I struggled just for a good year or two figuring out what open door He would provide for me. God taught me about patience. God taught me about waiting, some of the things that I said earlier on in the show. God taught me much about His own faithfulness, renewing my calling even in my own heart. But probably not knowing what direction I would go in ministry was probably one of the most difficult times I've had in ministry, trying to discern which direction to go. And then after waiting on the Lord, the the Lord opened up the the door for me to move to Wales, my wife and I, uh, to serve here at Union School of Theology as provost and over that school of training young men and women for gospel ministry. And so uh, we could not be happier where we are and what God has us doing. But until you get to that season of of great fulfillment and joy and happiness, sometimes there is a long period of waiting. But just don't lose hope would be my advice. Yeah, it really goes back to what you were saying earlier about the sovereignty of God and just resting in that. Yes, indeed. Yes, yes. That's... um, That has to be probably the piece of advice I wish I had received when I announced a calling to preach was that you're not going to have it all figured out. You're not going to know everything. Just trust in the Lord's sovereignty to give you the desires of your heart. What is God teaching you in this moment? Maybe it's in the year 2020, or maybe it's just in your personal walk with the Lord. What's something God's teaching you right now? Well, it's interesting, Michael, because it goes right along with what I've just said. I would say if anything that God is teaching me now, it's patience. And perhaps your listeners would say, wow, he, you know, you keep saying that word, but it's a word that I've I've really thought about as of late. As the old adage goes, don't pray for patience because God will send you more trials to try your patience. But I, I just don't see that that's the case. Patience really involves an enduring. It's a long-suffering that the Scripture talks about. Patience is an element of love, even. Peter, for instance, reminded his readers of God's own patience for us even before salvation. And so patience is something that we should aspire to even in this Christian life. It's not a bad thing to pray for patience. So my wife and I moved to Wales in July of this year And since the restrictions began in the United States in March, I could dare say that we've only been able to attend a handful of worship services over the past seven months. Of course, continuing, striving to continue that through online services, but they were just starting to open back up in the States before we moved to the UK. And then when we got to the UK, most churches are still not open. And so that has been quite grieving for our hearts. And so we've had to wait on him and and strive to learn at this moment that we just need patience for whatever God seems to be doing during this crisis. Yeah. You mentioned how that grieves your heart. My follow-up to that is when you think about the church as a whole or, or individual believers, what is something that grieves you the most when you think about the church? Well, beyond the normal answers, of course, of 
not knowing God as greatly as we should, not preaching the word as we should, not cherishing the gospel of Christ as much as we should, I would say that we don't love the church as we should. Every generation faces the challenge of properly defining the church, and really few definitions that I've seen, even in my time in ministry, few definitions of the church move from organization and functionality to her beauty and loveliness. So we see the church as what we can take instead of seeing her for who she is. So I think one of the one of the greatest things that grieves me the most is that we've lost our affection for the church as the bride and body of Christ. We've really picked a take it or leave it mentality, and we make our Christian walk much more personal than corporate. I've, I've heard it during the pandemic episode of churches shutting down and, and Christians being sequestered in their homes and locked down. And so many people on social media and all of the rest of it, well, I don't need the church. I don't need to gather with the church. I don't need the fellowship. I don't need to be in a building. I don't need to be with other people because my personal walk is is very personal to me and all I need is Jesus. That That is not substantiated anywhere in the Bible. The Bible never presents the faithful walk of a believer as a single isolated experience. But the Bible always presents the faithful walk of a believer as a corporate experience. It it involves fellowship. It involves worship. It involves gathering together with brothers and sisters in Christ, being taught the word, setting under the preaching of the word, praying together, encouraging one another, edifying one another. And so even now, We've begun to change the definition of the church as we've found ourselves in restrictions. But the greatest pastoral crisis when all of this is over is going to be convincing people why they need and why they should still love the church. And so that's probably what grieves me the most. One thing that I thought of while you were talking, Dustin, is just this, um, there's so many people that have this idea or this attitude towards church of what can I get out of church? What did the pastor mm. preach today? Did I like it? Did I not like it? Did I learn anything? Did I not? And and really, that's missing the mark completely on what we're supposed to be. And so would you talk about that a little bit, just uh, about our attitude towards church and how really it should be, what can I give to the church? What can I do and give to God and not what it's given and doing for me? Well, so many people attend the church just simply to sit on the sidelines, as it were, and they never involve themselves in the ministries of the church. I can't remember the statistic, but I think it's over 80% of the people uh, just basically warm a pew, and it's only a very few percentage that really involve themselves in the ministries of the church. But I would simply say this, that you have no idea the rich rewarding blessing that you are missing by giving yourselves your life, your time, your mind, your heart, your energy, your hands, your feet, all of yourself to the body of Christ. As a believer, you are the bride of Christ. You are his body. You may be an arm, you may be a leg, you may be an eye, you may be an ear, whatever the case would be. God doesn't have people 
in his kingdom that sit on the sidelines. What a tremendous blessing that you're missing by by just simply going, as it were, for a take-it-or-leave-it mentality of warming a pew, sucking up all you can from others, but never giving. That's also quite foreign uh, to Scripture and how uh, Paul, for instance, constantly reminding the churches of whom he had been given charge the necessity of watching and praying and serving and giving and loving. And so, yes, that is definitely a pastoral crisis at the moment. I'm right there with you, Dustin. Uh, Some of my greatest joy when it comes to church is just being able to use the gifts and talents that God has given me to serve him by serving others. So I agree with everything that you just said. Dustin, who are three people that have impacted you the most when it comes to your walk with the Lord? We could go on and on for hours um, just simply about this question, Michael, because so many people uh, that I have read most probably would be dead. Men that I've never met, um, reformers, Puritans, and others who who I've, I've never spoken to, who I will only meet in heaven, who have had tremendous impacts upon my life and ministry and spirituality. Uh, if I were to narrow it down to three, I would perhaps say first would be Jonathan Edwards, 18th century preacher in New England, pastor at Northampton. He, he's taught me how to be a pastor theologian. He's taught me about living the Christian life in joy. I actually did my doctoral work on Edwards, and so I became extremely acquainted with him and his mind and his heart. And so that's that's why I would probably say him. Uh, a second would probably be John MacArthur from afar. Uh, perhaps your listeners listened to him or have been encouraged by him uh, quite early on in ministry. I, I took his book, Expository Preaching, or rediscovering expository preaching and just devoured that book. It is marked up, it's dog-eared, the pages are falling out, because I really sat at his feet to learn how to properly exposit the Bible. And then I would say Michael Haken, who your listeners may or may not know. He is a professor at Southern Seminary in Louisville. He was my PhD supervisor, and he's a very dear friend. He's teaches church history and biblical spirituality. He's taught me how to be a proper historian and look at history through the lens of God's providence. He's taught me through his own example of how to instill my life in my life into others in ministry and spirituality. Such a kind heart, such a gentle heart, really the epitome of of a godly man. And so those three probably have have had perhaps a very large impact upon me spiritually as well as in my ministry. Yeah, I want to ask this follow-up question to that. I didn't originally have this plan to ask you, but you mentioned a couple of books and things you've read from folks who are no longer around or with us. Uh, What would be some of your favorite resources, some of your favorite books you've read that if if somebody hasn't read it, that's like your go-to, hey, you need to read this? Wow, that's a huge question. I would say get on Banner of Truth, their website, and order everything that they have. Get on Reformation Heritage Books and order everything that they have. (laughs) But seriously, I would say get a good systematic theology book. Get a a very good Bible dictionary, a very good concordance. Uh, I go to those resources 
every single week of my life. Jonathan Edwards, uh, the end for which God created the world, really helped and challenged me in early on in my ministry. John Owen has really encouraged and challenged me. Uh, Wilhelm Abrackel, uh, Christian's Reasonable Service, published by Reformation Heritage Books, uh, several volumes of just rich, deep, hearty, meaty, biblical material. So read the Puritans, read those who have died, read uh, the Reformers, Calvin and Luther and, and other were others, and, and just be challenged by them. Uh, they all have helped me tremendously. Speaking of being challenged, uh, um, I'm going to link your Twitter account and your website and those sorts of things to the show notes here. But on Twitter, you're somebody that I follow and and you tweet out the things you tweet are all really challenging and encouraging to believers. And so uh, you are a fantastic follow on Twitter. And some of these questions here are, are based off of some tweets that you've had and some really some articles you've written that I found on your website. And so I want to ask you, you wrote an article about how believers are supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. Would you talk about that a little bit? I would say, first of all, Michael, social media is very challenging. I tried to set my mind quite early on to simply share truth and doctrine and scripture. And and it seems like everyone at the moment is out to get everyone else. Even believers are at each other's throats, and it just grieves me. Sometimes, as of late, I have tweeted something, and then it just ended up deleting it because I I just did not want the the vitriol and the anger to be just lamblast me. And so, social media can be quite a grieving place as well uh, because you really see the condition of so many hearts and. And, and you just pray that that's not representative of the church. And in many cases, I don't think it is. But that's a good question. How do believers live in the world and not of the world? Because I constantly have to challenge myself uh, with that very question as I'm posting on social media. And I go, Michael, to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus lovingly gazing over the crowd of people Uh, He proclaimed in Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. That to me, in in a summary statement, epitomizes what it should mean for a believer to live in the world and not of the world. Now, it's not that we somehow emit light of our own making because of some inherent good within us. There's no light in my heart that I emit naturally. But because Jesus is the light of the world, and he dwells in all believers through the Holy Spirit, therefore Jesus within us shines through us. This is the truth he came to bear witness to, wasn't it? The radiant reflection of his Father's glory. And so as Christ is that radiant reflection of his Father's glory, so all believers reflect the same radiance of Christ. In other words, all believers are mirror reflections of the image of Christ. And the world full of hate and lies and deception and murder and half-truth and even death is illuminated by this light that dwells within you through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so how do believers live in the world and not of the world? I would simply say this, be what you are. Be a blazing light. Be the mirror image of Christ 
in a world of lies. Be who you are. Yeah, one of the best illustrations about that that I've ever heard, and I'll give a shout out to my pastor here, Pastor Josh Hyde. He talks about how believers are a lot like the moon. When you look at the moon, like the moon on a, a full moon night, it's shining bright, it's beautiful, but it's not the moon that's shining the light. It's the reflection of the, the light of the sun. And so in a lot of ways, we as believers are like that. We're like that moon. We were, we were dead. We had no light until the light of the Son of God shines on and through us, through our relationship with Him. And so I love that illustration of that. And it really just goes back to abiding in Christ. Like if we want to be that light, if we want to live in this world, but not be of it, we've got to be abiding in Christ and spending time in His presence. Absolutely. Amen to that. What a beautiful illustration that is of of basking in the light of Christ and just simply reflecting who he is. This next question here, you hear this a lot in culture today, and I think it's just going to continue to get worse the farther along we go. But so many people, so much of our culture likes to say and talk about my truth and what's your truth and what's my truth. Could you talk about, could you speak into that some and how there's no such thing as my truth. There's, there's truth and Jesus is the truth. Could you kind of talk about that a little bit? Well, with greater frequency, the world is not only really ambivalent to the truth, but it hates the truth. And the very concept of truth will elicit, especially on social media, will elicit mockery as as everyone basically replies, I will decide what my own truth is. But this is really a, a subtle deception, isn't it, that stems directly from the serpent in the garden who began twisting the truth at the very beginning. Genesis 3.1, the, the serpent came to Eve and he said, did God actually say? So twisting God's truth is what Satan has in mind here. So he's cunning, he's crafty, and he's chiseling away at the truth to cause doubt to arise in your heart. And if he can just simply get you to get you to the point of questioning what God actually has said, then he has you exactly where he wants you. And so his deceitfulness really plays out, Michael, in three stages. First of all, the devil casts doubt on God's words. We see this evidenced, of course, in the question that he asked Eve, did God actually say? Well, we're to doubt what God has said. Secondly, Satan casts doubt on God's goodness. So Eve fell prey to this trickery and and begins to question the, the kindness and the goodness of God toward her and her husband by believing that God had kept back some sort of happiness from them, and they were missing out, as it were, on something that God had kept from them. And then thirdly, Satan convinces Eve to doubt God's authority by contradicting God's words. And so he tells Eve, God may have said to you, you will die, but but you will not surely die, but your eyes will be opened. And so Satan's objective is always the same, to convince you to doubt God's words, to doubt God's goodness, and to doubt God's authority. It's as if he wants us to ask the question, what is truth? And then in response, we say, well, 
every single person is up to creating their own truth. When we come to the New Testament, Paul even warned the church at Corinth, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led away from sincere and pure devotion to Christ, 2 Corinthians 11.3. And so Satan delights in leading believers away from faithful obedience to God and his word by inviting them to swim in the waters of the worldly deception that we create our own truth. Really, a lot of what we're talking about here is about the importance of knowing God's word, being in his presence. Would you just kind of talk about, maybe say a word of encouragement to that believer who's listening right now, who struggles to get in the word, they don't prioritize time in the morning or, or whenever, just getting into the Word, whether it's five minutes, or would you just kind of speak a word of encouragement to that person who struggles getting into the Word? I think it really just comes down to a discipline. It, it's very practical. There, there's nothing that's going to drag you to the Bible. Now, hopefully as a believer, I think God has placed within us, or we have placed within us, a desire to go to the Bible, a desire to read His Word just simply because as a Christian, it's our food, isn't it? It's it's our nourishment. To not read the scripture is basically like you're going without eating and drinking. Your body will starve. Your body will shrivel up. Your body will eventually die without food and water. And the same is true for our own spiritual life. And so it's prioritizing your spiritual life. It's prioritizing your desire to be more like Christ. It's prioritizing your desire to get in the Word. Very practically, schedule time in the day. Get on a good Bible reading plan, as it were. Have exactly what you are to read every single day. Make an appointment, just like you would with a doctor or a dentist, or perhaps you're going for some sort of treatment, or you have to go to the grocery store. It's the same type of appointment as that. Make an appointment every single day and set yourself to that which is the greatest of all disciplines to get into the scripture. It's very practical. It's very easy. Nothing is going to drag you there, but out of our heart for a desire to know Christ you can only know Christ through his word. And so that's exactly where you need to go every single day. And it's vitally important. If we know that Satan's agenda is to twist scripture and to get us to doubt it, how much more do we have to know it? Amen. So it's Amen. so important. Yes. Dustin, if you were in my shoes and you're sitting down interviewing yourself, what is one thing that you would ask? Michael, I'm, I would have absolutely no idea. Um, Perhaps why in the world did God save you? Um, and and that would just give me the opportunity to brag about him, to brag about and boast about his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness and his loveliness. Because I don't know why God saved me except for his own glory. It's not that I doubt that. I, I, I've never had great seasons of doubt about my salvation, but if if i were asking me a question and i would i would desire to ask others this question why did god save you uh, just so that we could exalt christ for a moment just so we could bask in his glorious beauty for a moment who who doesn't have to save sinners 
but desires to save sinners through Christ. And so that would be my desire, just simply to exalt him, to glory in him, and to thank him for such a glorious act of salvation. Yeah, that's a fantastic answer. Thank you for that. And then my last question for you, Dustin, and we're, believe it or not, we're done after this, <laughs> is if you had an opportunity to say one thing to the listener, you know this is your last opportunity to speak to this particular audience, what would that one thing be? Well, I would probably just reiterate what I've already said. As a believer, be what you are, especially in the current circumstances of which we find ourselves, not only in the global pandemic and fear that has been perpetuated during this time and and the inability to worship together, the political upheaval that has taken place over this past year, and all the challenges of 2020. As a believer, be what you are. All believers must stand bold and firm in their faith, redeeming the time and shining as blazing gospel lights in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation. So I would just simply say, stand bold. Stand bold upon the authority of God. Stand bold upon the authority of the Word of God in the power of the Holy Spirit, and expose the lies of this world by proclaiming the truth of God. Really, in this moment, Michael, we should live no differently now than we lived before this crisis or that we will live after this crisis. We don't move in and out of how we are supposed to live as believers. We are to be consistently firm in our faith, spreading the gospel, sharing the truth, and growing more like Christ. So as a believer, be what you are. Be lights in the world. I love that. Dustin, I can't thank you enough for your time. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you, Michael. It's been a privilege to be with you, and uh, perhaps we can do it again in the future. Absolutely. I'm more than welcome to that. Would you close us in prayer today? Sure. Our Father, we thank you for your glorious goodness to us in Christ, giving to us the gift of your precious Son to pay the penalty for our sins on the cross gloriously rising the third day as confirmation that our sins had been forgiven and that you had paid the ultimate price before your Father and then ushering us into his presence where before we were never able to come. We thank you, Father, for all those listening today. We pray that their faith would be strong and bold during this time, that you would give them courage You would give them boldness to speak the truth in a world of lies, and you would give them dedication to you and the advancement of your gospel in the nations of the world. Give us your help during this hour, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode of the Sharper Together podcast. If you want to hear more incredible conversations just like this, please make sure to subscribe to the Sharper Together podcast on your favorite listening device. You'll receive each episode downloaded directly to you so you never miss a show. Would you take a moment and subscribe and review this podcast because the more subscriptions and reviews we receive means more and more people that will receive and hear about these life-giving conversations. You can find more information at www.sharperpodcast.com. We'll see you next time as we stay sharper together.